Welcome to the Seahawks 360 Podcast, a Sports Ethos production, where we look at the Seahawks from every angle, every week. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Well, guys, the preseason is officially over. So we're done with that. Put it in the books. The Seahawks go down 0-3 in the preseason. They lose their final preseason game to the Cowboys with a final score of 26-27. It came down to the wire. And guys, you know, it really doesn't mean anything that the Seahawks didn't win any of, the, any of these preseason games. A lot of teams don't take true stock in the preseason game. I don't think Pete Carroll took too much stock in this preseason game. What matters is how the team looked, how the rookies looked. That Those are the things that you want to be watching for. Who made a roster spot for themselves. That Those are the only things that matter. So I would not take away anything from the preseason and assume that it's going. that's going, how the team will look in the regular season because I saw a marked difference. If you guys watched that game in that first drive, you might have saw Geno Smith throw to Tyler Lockett a few times. The offense, I think, was functioning very well and looked much better in comparison to when other receivers were dropping passes. That was another issue, continued issue. And I don't think a lot of those guys will even make the team, or if they are on the team, they won't be getting significant snaps with the Seattle Seahawks. So just don't panic. I actually was very encouraged by a lot of the things that I saw in the preseason. I will say that the rookies, Tariq and Kobe, Charles Cross, Abe Lucas, the guys who had been standing out far and above everybody else, they looked okay. I don't think anybody had a bad game, but I thought more, I was pleased more for me with the cohesion of the group, the functionality of the offense from a scheme and general perspective. I think I think defensively, we looked night and day. The team looked together. They looked functional. They were able to tackle. The tackling was significantly better, not just on defense, but on special teams. Jason Myers made all his field goals. And so I think what I saw and what I was encouraged by was a team that looks like it's coming together. Keeping in mind that a lot of the guys who played, especially even on defense, it was even more encouraging for me because those guys, they weren't the starters. They only played two of the potential rotation players on the squad on defense. And I still thought they looked significantly better than they had those first two preseason games. So overall, I think there's a lot to be positive about. But I know that a lot of you listening right now are disappointed, are very upset that Drew Locke was not named the starter. Basically, immediately after the final preseason game, Pete Carroll announced that Geno Smith will be the starter. And I know for a lot of you guys listening right now, you're thinking like, Geno Smith? Really? So what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about why it's not Locke. Why Geno Smith? How did he win this job? Why did he win this job? I know it's a very controversial subject amongst Seahawks Twitter right now. So we're going to get into that and then we're going to answer some of you guys' questions. So we have a lot to get into today. Let's get into it and talk some Hawks. So first things first, I would be remiss not to mention the controversy that is going on amongst Seahawks Twitter right now. There are a lot of you guys who really feel like Drew Locke was never really given a fair chance, that Pete Carroll had sort of made up his mind 
about who would start before this competition even really started and that Drew Life never really was given an opportunity to show his stuff. Now, I will say I understand why some people feel like that. I understand with the limited reps that Drew Locke got with the ones. He, he It was not always tit for tat. A lot of times Geno Smith got all the starter reps. Drew Locke would often end up with the second string offensive line. He would get reps with the skill positions. I think he would get reps with Noah Fant, with DK Metcalf, Lockett, but in terms of the offensive line, and a lot of times even the defense that he played against, it would be more exclusively against the second string. A lot of people also look at Pete Carroll's persistence that Geno Smith was ahead, Geno Smith was in the lead, and they look at that and just feel like Drew wasn't really given a chance, especially that he wasn't even given an opportunity to start in this third preseason game, which was a surprise, I'll admit, to even me. But despite all of that, guys, I still feel like it was fair. Now, was it equal? Equal and equal in division of responsibilities, equal in work, doesn't to me always mean that it's fair. And, and you may wonder what I mean by that, right? But here's the thing. I think that things have to be earned. And that's with not just Pete Carroll, but for any football coach. You aren't just often, or you shouldn't often be, just given things because they should be earned. And the reason why I feel like it's fair, despite, <laughs> despite the fact that he did not get a lot of opportunities with the starting offensive line, despite the fact that he did not always play against the toughest of defenses. The reason I feel it was fair was because he never earned a lot of opportunities to play with the ones. And when people, when he did start before he tested positive for COVID-19 and right at that point, he was getting starting reps because he had done well in the preseason game, despite his turnover, he had earned, I think, and I think the coaching staff felt between that, his performance in the mock game was very solid. He had earned reps with the starting defense, against the starting defense, and with the starting offensive line. He was given that. He wasn't able to take opportunity or advantage of that because he wasn't feeling well at all that day. But, and that was unfortunate for him. That was a tough break. I, I'm just going to admit that that was bad luck for him. But to me, it was about more than just that. You want a guy to earn these those reps. For example, look at Abraham Lucas. People hoped he might be the starter, but it, it wasn't given to him. He did not come in and automatically was just given the spot. Now, Charles Cross is a little different because we literally didn't have another left tackle on the roster, but Abe Lucas had to compete to get his spots. He was with the twos. He... Played so well with the twos, so consistently with the twos, earned the trust with the twos, that he was given opportunity with the ones. And I feel like had Drew Locke followed that same path, he would have seen the same results. It's simple. You're new here. Come in, earn it. Earn the locker room, earn the first team reps. You get what you earn, what you deserve, essentially. Abe Lucas, too much of our excitement, 
he was able to step up. He was able to beat Jay Curhan. And now I am sure, I, I was not sure that he would be able to beat out the incumbent, but it seems like he's won that right tackle starting job, which is really exciting for the future of the Seattle Seahawks. But it was earned. Tariq Woolen, when he came in, he was he did not get reps with the ones. He got reps with the twos, with the threes. And guess what? He made play after play after play. He showed consistency after consistency after consistency. And yes, there were flaws. Yes, there were mess ups, both in the case of Abraham Lucas and in the case of Tariq Woolen. There were mess ups. Tariq Woolen played pretty bad in his first preseason game, but it's how he responded to that. Drew Locke had the same opportunities to respond to his turnover against the Steelers, to how he ended the game, to bounce back and respond to that and play well and show consistency and show progress and show that that was just a mistake and it was isolated and that he could build upon that mistake and be better because of it. And he was not able to do that. He simply was not able to do that. And because he was not able to do that, because he was not able to take opportunity and, and, and really grab it, He's not the starter, just from a general sense. To me, I don't feel like Gino starting was just because Gino is starting or just because coach decided in the beginning of the preseason. Yes, I do think that Pete Carroll had a propensity to to, to lean Gino, but I also think Pete Carroll was open-minded to the fact that a lot could really take this. And that's all you need. You don't need the coaches to favor you in order to be taking advantage of opportunities. The coaches didn't favor Tariq Woolen. The coaches didn't favor Abraham Lucas. They favored Jay Carahan. Sidney Jones, Artie Burns. That's who they favored. But guess what? The others showed enough to they showed that they were worth stepping up. They caught the attention of the coaches. They earned the trust of the coaches. And now they're in a position. I don't know about Tariq Willen. I don't know if he'll start. I, I actually doubt he will start, but he is so much closer. He'll get consistent rotational reps. P. Carroll has said that in press conference. We'll see him. And that wasn't originally going to be the case. I don't feel. I think they saw him as a project. And while he probably would have made the 53-man roster, I don't think we would have saw him much, if any, this upcoming year, if it not been for the strong and most importantly, consistent play from Woolen this year. So that's my spiel. That's my soapbox. I know everybody's not going to agree. I understand why everybody's not going to agree. Like I said, if you look at it from a situational surface level, I understand the argument that's there. But you have to look beyond that and you have to look at other examples of just because Drew Locke wasn't able to make the best of his situation doesn't mean that the opportunities wasn't there and doesn't mean that it wasn't ultimately fair. Ha, look at me, bars. Okay, I know that's corny. So moving on, now that we've talked about how the decision was made and the process by which it was made, I do want to talk about a little bit of why wasn't it Drew Locke? Outside of him not taking advantage of his opportunities that he was given, outside of him not stepping up in moments when it would have been a big deal for him to step up, just from a pure football perspective, what made the decision to go with Gino ultimately, in my opinion, the best one? The number one thing, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is turnovers. Pete Carroll cannot stand turnovers. And you know what? 
People get frustrated with Pete Carroll about that. They feel like it's overemphasized. They feel like it's too strong of a point that's made, that it's not that important, that it's not that significant, but it actually is. It's not just Pete Carroll. He's not crazy. That's not one of these situations where Pete's just outdated and turnovers really don't matter that much. That's not the case. Turnovers genuinely affect outcome of games heavily. Research shows in general, but a study or even more recent study was done on this just in 2020. Teams that won the turnover margin by two or more won 83.9% of the time. Winning the turnover margin alone led to the victory. To counter that, the teams that were at the bottom, the bottom 10 teams in turnover margin for that year, none of them had a winning record. And I know you might say, well, Candace, this team is rebuilding Why do we need to even be caring about how many games we win? Wouldn't ultimately it just lead to better draft position anyway? And yes, technically you're right. If we lose more games because we own the first round pick or the team owns the first round pick this year, yeah, sure, it would lead to better draft position. But here's a few things to consider if that's your draft logic, if that's your logic about this whole situation. That's how you view it. Coaches and players do not care about draft picks. Players even less so because it tends to mean if if the team gets a higher draft pick, it might mean their job. So players really don't care about that. And you don't want an unhappy, unhappy locker room because the team is losing. Two, the coaches don't care about that. And I'm not sure the fans should be overly concerned about that. I'm really not. I'm not advocating to say that the, that the, team should go on to win the playoffs because I don't think I don't think they should I'm not saying that that's the best case scenario for the Seahawks I don't think that that would be it but I do think that the best case scenario for the Seattle Seahawks is to win six or seven games at least you win less than six or seven games here's what that means one if you can't even get the six or seven wins it's a lot more than just the quarterback That means you're significantly further away from being in contention in the next two to three years. A lot of the Seattle Seahawks fan base, all of you guys, a lot of you guys want in the next year or two for the Seattle Seahawks to be back in contention, back in the playoff hunt, for that to be a realistic possibility. Okay, well, if this team wins less than six or seven games, it's not just the quarterback. Or maybe it is just the quarterback being so bad and it brings down the talent on the rest of the team, then you got to spend extra time trying to redevelop players because they've just been in a bad situation. That's not good. Look at the, look at the Jaguars. Look at Trevor Lawrence. He's not better off for have being in a bad team. He's still got to now try to develop those skills he should have gotten the year before. That he, had he been in a better situation, he probably would have gotten had the team not been so filled with a losing culture and drama. And while there won't be as much drama on the Seattle Seahawks team as much as there was on the Jaguars, the point is still valid, right? It's just not, it's not helpful. It's not a healthy environment, especially for young players, for young impressionable players. This is a young roster with young players and they need to understand what a competitive culture looks like. Maybe maybe not winning yet, 
right? Maybe the first year isn't a winning culture, quote unquote, but it at least needs to be competitive. It can't be a tanking culture. That's not good for Tariq Woolen. That's not good for Ken Walker III. It's just not. It's not going to help them. It's going to hinder their development because one, they won't even get the opportunities, the reps. If the ball keeps, if, if Drew Locke never changed his problem, like let's say Locke was out there. He never fixed the problem with interceptions. He throws two, three a game. Okay, were well, you giving over the ball so much that's lost opportunities on offense for D. Eskridge, for Ken Walker III? How does that help them? You need somebody at least competent enough to get the ball to the, to the receivers that are not on the other team. That's important. Pete Carroll's not being crazy because of that. That's a legitimate concern. Can you get DK and lock at the ball enough to be productive? Sure, we know he can make big plays, but can you get them the touchdowns? Can can you move can the chains be moved? Those are valid questions. And that some could argue that Locke could do that. He can, but would Locke give it? Locke take it away. And if you didn't believe me before now, you've seen it for yourself in this previous preseason game where he had three interceptions. Now one of them was not his fault, but it's still three interceptions. And that's not sustainable. Not if you want to have a competitive culture in the locker room. Now, from a football field perspective, why not lock? Here are some things I noticed in the preseason game. I talked about the interceptions just now. Some could argue there was really one bad one. One one that was solely on him. Right. And so most people would point to that and say, that's really the only thing. Those are the only things he did wrong. Other than that, he played well. I would disagree. If you break down the film, there were a few things that played into play, not just the interceptions. One, at least in that in that game, Locke had a bad habit of getting the ball out late. Several of those incompletions, several of those almost interceptions, because a lot of people like to gloss over that. There were a lot of opportunities where. The ball should have been picked and just the defensive player just dropped it. It was a very likely pick. And so, yeah, in some ways his, his stats should have been worse. It also should have been better because, because he had issue with wide receivers dropping his ball, like the balls that he would throw as well. So it could have been better, but it also could have been worse in a lot of ways, but that was a real problem. Him getting the ball out late, That led to, like I said, incompletions. It led to almost interceptions. And he got lucky a couple of times. So it wasn't just that. It wasn't just good play and then the picks. And I know a lot of of people who are anti-Geno get mad at Geno for holding on to the ball too long. Okay, well, Drew Locke did that much more consistently than Geno did. Has has ever done that. It It was repeatedly just, this is a quick game throw and just pat the ball hold on to it late, or to put the receiver in harm's way. That play with Freddie Swain, sure, he could have caught that. But honestly, ball gets out just a little bit earlier. He puts it just a little bit in front of him, leads him a little bit. That play is completely different. He could have, honestly, it, it was kind of a good thing that it was a high pass because the way it was thrown, because it, because with the timing with which it was thrown, had it actually been thrown accurately, he would have gotten hammered by the safety coming down the line. The fact that he had to stop to grab the high pass and attempt to get that would act was actually helpful. 
but it wasn't used but the timing of it was off to begin with it was actually a good play but the timing was off now I still feel like Freddie Swain should catch that and that's not the first time I felt that way about a Freddie Swain pass but it's again the timing of Drew Locke then I feel like he has trouble processing the game going through his progressions going through his reads sometimes it seems like he's already determined where he's going to throw the ball before he throws it that bad interception that nobody can really understand why he got intercepted or how what he was seeing my thought he already determined that he was going to throw that ball before he saw the reads he just threw it and despite the fact that there was a whole defensive a whole cornerback standing right in front of the receiver he just threw it that, because it was he, he'd already made the decision before the snap. And that's dangerous. And that's not good quarterback play. And it's going to and it makes it hard to function with the Shane Waldron offense in that system. It's very important to read what the defense gives their option routes and all these other things, choice routes that the receivers run because it's in a system. It's, it's aimed to take advantage of the defensive weaknesses. And if the quarterback's not going to be able to process and evaluate that appropriately, then no, it's not a competent starter. No matter how flashy the plays, no matter how flashy the touchdowns, and it is flashy. The guy's got an arm. He does. But his mental aspect of the game is significantly below where it needs to be in order to be able to effectively run this offense that's the reality other things that prevented him on the field staring down receivers saw him doing that a couple of times go back and watch the tape he would stare them down and people get on Gino about that but when it's locked nobody's talking about it I'm just saying I'm just throwing it out there and then finally my issue and I'm sure it was an issue with P. Carroll as well just too many jump balls Uh, a lot of Throw it up and let your guy catch it. And sometimes you want that, especially if you're playing with the DK Metcalf. If it's DK Metcalf, that's your targeted receiver. But even on the touchdown throws, a touchdown attempts, catch up and throw, catch up and throw it up, jump ball types with with D. Eskridge, who's really small. Really, throw it up and catch it with Penny Hard jump balls with those guys. I mean. I think those were catchable balls. I'm not saying that they weren't catchable balls. But I am saying take what the defense gives you. You don't always have to give the the jump ball when a guy's got like two defenders hanging over and throwing it up. So, and that's, I saw that just a little bit too often. Not consistently, but, you know, there were those risky throws that they were, they were risky. Jump balls. And that's not... That's not good consistently, especially if you're not considering the type of receiver you're giving the jump ball to. If it's DK, do it all day. If it's not DK, I wouldn't even do that that much with Tyler Lockett. Yeah, sure, Tyler Lockett's got great hands, so you can give that a go. But you just got to have that understanding of take what the defense gives, not throwing a jump ball and 50-50 shot, defense may get it, receiver may get it. Too risky, not efficient enough. Those are the football reasons why Locke played himself out of a starting spot last night. And I can say this unfortunate because 
So we'll never know how big of a factor COVID played into his performance. To me, it did seem like he flung it around a little bit more. He seemed to have a never may care sort of attitude. Hey, this is my last hurrah potentially. Let me just go for it. Where before there was reports about him seeming more controlled, seeming more, I don't know, just making better decisions, not having as many of those risky throws that he had in the preseason game. I mean, sometimes he was just chucking it up. And that's not going to be okay. And I know we say that's because def- that Pete is a defensive-minded coach. And that I'm sure that's part of it. But no coach really wants that. Let's be honest. No coach wants that or it's their job. So Pete's got a right to feel that way. And I don't think it's just because he's an old coach or because he's a defensive coach. There are valid reasons. And I think any coach with, you know, who really wants to win, who's really interested in winning, between the two is probably going to make the same choice. Now, now that we've broken down all of that, there's a lot to get into. Let's move on to your questions. You guys sent me questions today. I asked you what your opinions were, what you had questions or concerns about. And so up next, we answer your questions right now. Now, here we go. It's time to answer you guys' questions, and we absolutely got some great ones for you today. I want to give a special shout out to David Williams. You can give him a follow at NBADWheel21, at NBADWheel21. He had some fire questions that he came in with today, so we're going to get into some of those great questions. Let's get started. Question number one, David asked, how long of a leash does Pete give Gino? Will team record be the deciding factor when slash if he's made a, made a switch or will it be based off of Gino's play? For example, if they are, say, one in four after the first five games, but Gino is playing well, does Pete stay the course? This is a great question because it's one of the things that I think everybody's wondering. I still feel personally that Drew Locke is going to get an opportunity to start some games this year. I think either way, we're always going to see both quarterbacks. Because while Geno has more game manager ability, I do think that has a ceiling on it, a pretty low ceiling on how far they can get you in the NFL. And I can see Pete wanting to just try something different, a fresh approach, give Drew some more time, see what he's got. Because even when Pete Carroll announced that Gino's a starter, it was not with the confidence. The, the wording sort of indicated that it, it might not be forever, that essentially there may be opportunity for Drew to come back in. I think the door is still open for, for Drew Locke. He's got to be better in practice. He's got to really hone in on some of those mistakes he was making. But it's possible that Gino gives up this spot. So when, if it happens, is a switch made. In my opinion, Pete's not going to make a switch at least for the first six to seven weeks. I think it could be up to 12. I don't think Gino's going to play more than 12 games. I'll be honest. I'd be very surprised if Gino played more than 12 games. I'm not seeing it. Locke's going to get at least five. But here's the thing about Pete. Pete is you know, a little stubborn. We'll just be honest. To me, I think it's more likely if especially if Gino is playing well and let's say the team is one and four, then the coach is going to look to 
fix other things. He's going to look to make adjustments on defense. He's going to look to make adjustments on special teams. He's going to look to get on his wide receivers or encourage Waldron to, to change some of the schematic things. If you go back and think about it, there's a precedent for that. For example, the past two years, the Seahawks defense has been immensely slow. Like, when I say slow, I mean bad, like historically bad in terms of how many passing yards they were giving up each game. It was atrocious, to be honest. And despite questions, concerns from media coming from outside sources, questioning him about the method, the methods that he was doing, what all, you know, basically a lot of people were panicking, including myself, <laughs> were panicking about how bad the defense was, especially given the talent that was on the roster. It just wasn't making sense. And it was a slow process, but Pete just kept saying, we're making adjustments, be patient. We're working on it. We're working out through things. They And they did. They went back, they reevaluated things. They made adjustments and every year it would get better in the second half. I think because of that, because Pete's lived through that, he's not going to be somebody to just switch up quickly. He wants to make some minor adjustments before he just makes a huge overhaul change. See what he can tweak, see what he can adapt, and if that doesn't work, then he'll make a quarterback change. I think he'll apply the same mindset that he that he did to the historically bad defenses the past two years, give it time, see if things develop, see if things get better, and then if they don't, make a drastic change, which for the team ultimately ended up being switching to more three, four principles, basically the foundation of what led to the scheme change that they have officially implementing this year. But it wasn't a huge haul overnight. They slowly but surely started implement more principles, make more tweaks, and then they sort of embraced this new thought process, mindset, and philosophy when it came to the defensive scheme. But I will say this, if Geno's playing bad, and for Pete Carroll, that means turning over the ball. If Geno's playing bad, I can see Pete Carroll making a change earlier. Now, if Geno's not playing well, if he's turning the ball over, then I think if you're going to deal with, and I think Pete Carroll would feel the same way, if you got turnover machines on either end, then you really would rather Drew Locke because he's got the upside of being able to get you get points get or make it back up, redeem it quicker between the two. Now, Pete would be probably somewhere crazy up a wall if that were the case. And I don't anticipate that Gino would get too turnover crazy. He seemed to work that out of his game. But that's the only way I can see Gino not getting at least a full six weeks to, you know, run the offense and get comfortable. After that, we'll see. Question number two reads, in regards to the running back situation, Early is likely that Penn will be the workhorse since Walker is out with the injury. But what do you think the split will look like when they're both healthy? Now, first, I want to address the first part of the question. I'm actually not under the assumption that Penny will be the workhorse, quote unquote, in those first few weeks. I actually think it's more likely he'll be the primary and he'll be the starter for sure. But just with the performances that Travis Homer and DJ Dallas have put on, especially in the preseason. But honestly, I think any Seahawks fan can say that they've seen a gradual progression and increase in their abilities and their skill sets. I think they've just gotten better over the years. So I think that the Seahawks will also lean on their pretty, in my opinion, pretty deep running back room. Like I said, 
Rashad Penny will be the primary, but I just don't see him being the workhorse, the every down guy, especially because of his injury history. That's the main thing. Now, if if Penny wasn't as injury prone, I think that probably would be the case. But Pete Carroll has shown in the past when he values a running back and he feels like that running back can take the team far, he'll sort of play conservative when it comes to that. For example, in 2019, Chris Carson rushed for over 1,200 yards. It was a great year, but he got injured two weeks before the season ended, right when they basically needed him in the playoffs. Every other running back got hurt, and they ended up having to pull Marshawn Lynch basically off of the street because all their running back depth went to hell, essentially. And so in 2020, what they did to kind of preserve Chris Carson was they had already had Rashad Penny, of course. It was Chris Carson, Rashad Penny, and they picked up Carlos Hyde, who had come off of a 1,000-yard season in 2019 as well. And they felt like that would help ease the workload on Chris Carson where it wouldn't be so much on him because they really, you know, before the season started, considered themselves to have a three-headed monster with Rashad Penny, Chris Carson, and Carlos Hyde. Now, of course, Rashad Penny got hurt. He only played in three games. So the workload ended up being potentially divided up or essentially divided up between Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde. If you go back and look at the stats for that year in 2020, Chris Carson had 121 touches and he had 46 targets for receptions. Well, Carlos Hyde had 81 rushes and he'd had 20 reception targets for receptions. And so he basically got a, a, a large chunk. I mean, it, it wasn't even Carson was still the primary but they leaned heavily on Carlos Hyde to sort of work and sort of, sort of take that workload off of him. In fact, if you go back even more specifically and look at weeks like one through six, it was even more divided because the fan base, I remember, I was kind of wondering about it. The fan base was complaining about it. They really seemed tentative about playing him too much. Carson, six weeks into the season, had 65 rushes. Carlos Hyde had 60. I mean, that's how even it was because they just wanted to make sure that Chris Carson basically got through the year relatively healthy so that he can contribute in the playoffs. Now, this is obviously a different situation. The playoffs isn't the goal here, but I do think a full year, relatively speaking, of Rashad Penny is important to Pete Carroll. And they've pretty much had bubble wrap on him all offseason because he's had a couple of injury issues even in the offseason. And so with that in mind, I don't think Pete's going to be comfortable essentially running his only true healthy star running running back into the ground, especially given they have enough running back depth not to have to do that. So to start, I think it'll be a three-headed monster approach. I think you can expect, you know, I'm just going to project here. The first six weeks, I'm going to project 140 rushes because It was 125 rushes when it was Carlos Hyde and Chris Carson in 2020. That was with Russell Wilson. They're going to run the ball more because their quarterback situation is different. So I'm going to say 140 rushes through week six. Okay, if that's hypothetically the number of rushes that the Seahawks have, my guess is Penny rushes for maybe 
70, 80, I said between 70 to 85 of those, somewhere in that range, assuming health, right? So this is under the assumption that he's healthy. I think he'll get over half of the workload. So maybe, maybe 80, I'll just stick with a number. We'll say 80, all right? That'll leave about 60 touches that I think will be divided up equally between Dallas and Homer. So I can see Dallas getting about 30, Homer getting around 30. And they're pretty good when they're being intentional about managing a running back's workload and making it out to be pretty even. That was something I was, it seemed a little seamless. It seems a little like it would be chaotic, but in 2020, it actually was pretty seamless in terms of, you know, just based on different situations, matchups, you know, maybe one would do a first down and a first down and a second down, another would do the third, and then they switch. One would come in at the third down, the other would do the first and the second. And so it worked, like I said, pretty seamlessly. But that's what I would imagine it would be before Walker comes back. Now my guess is that when Walker comes back, he's essentially gonna get those 60 or at least like 55 or 50 of those remaining, we'll just say touches. And I'm just using that 140 example. So then Penny would still get around 80 and you know, Ken Walker would get, like I said, maybe like 50 of those. And they may leave like the remaining 10 for a Travis Homer third down. Because Travis Homer, I think, was used more last year, especially given that he's a better third down back than DJ Dallas. I think those few reps would just go to Homer. We probably don't see a lot of Dallas. It wouldn't be the first time that's happened. Heck, if Dallas got 30, I think that's more than he's ever had. In a in a year, uh, when I, when I looked at Travis Homer's, his max touches was twenty five. His max rushes was twenty five in a whole year. So if he had thirty before week six seven, I think that'd still be fine. They'd be okay with that. Now I don't think things will fall that easily. More than likely, somebody's going to get hurt. Knowing how the Seattle Seahawks work, somebody's going to get hurt, and it'll probably be more balanced than that. But given assuming the health of everyone. That's how I think that will work, both before and after Ken Walker. So Ken Walker will get some run. Don't get me wrong. They, and I can actually see a world where they even decrease Penny's workload to accommodate some more for Walker if they ran Penny sort of high in, in that regard. I still think you'll see about tenors. You know, you'll still see the sparing snaps for Homer, but I could even see when when it comes back them leaning on Walker more just a little bit because they'd want to kind of catch him up make sure he gets the reps, get him comfortable, because I think they believe, I think they think really highly in about Walker, and I think they really want to see him develop. So even if Penny is still healthy at that point, like I said, I could just see a world where they take those away. Some of them, not all, Penny would still be the clear starter, but maybe Penny only gets like 70 of those reps instead of 80. And they give an extra 10 to Ken Walker. And then, like I said, the remaining. So there's a lot of different ways it can go. But Pete Carroll's never, I think there's only been one year in recent history when I can recall there was a true workhorse year. We truly had a workhorse. And that was Chris Carson when he had 1,200 yards in 2019. But then, like I said, at the end of the season, he was done. And so I think Pete remembers that. And ever since then, he seemed to like, sort of a stable at running backs. Generally, Seahawks fans can expect to see some of everybody, you know, depending on games and situations. And I think it'll stay like that. Question number three. 
Receiver production. What kind of numbers do you think we will see from DK and more importantly, Lockett? I only emphasize Lockett here because I believe fully that DK will eat regardless of who is throwing him the ball. And I would agree, David, that DK will be fine. I don't think that Gino, whoever it is, DK will be fine. He was fine when it was Gino last year. In that short span of time, DK had four touchdowns, 251 yards. So they'll be good. Now, I was very concerned about Lockett, the Lockett connection, because it just didn't seem to be apparent. Lockett's production seemed to suffer significantly when Gino came in. But it seems like they built a rapport over the offseason. So I feel a little bit better about it than I did going into the offseason. And in the two games, in the two reps or the two, you know, receptions from Tyler Lockett in the preseason game with him and Gino, they did look like they had built a lot stronger of a rapport. Lockett had two receptions, 35 yards, only eight snaps. So I felt, I feel better about it. Now, my question is, I guess how that, how the hierarchy will fall, because yes, the rapport was good looking between Lockett and Gino, but there was no other receivers making catches. So I mean, (laughs) will Geno still depend on Lockett in that way and look to him in that way when DK is on the field, when Noah Fant is on the field? Because people forget about Noah Fant, but, you know, he's a factor in this too. And so I did have to think about a fair breakdown. So I'm going to do this by percentages because it's, it's hard to give numbers or projected numbers. I have no idea how much Geno's going to throw, his attempts, his targets, how many yards he's going to get average per game. I would need to see a game or two before I could really like give number projections. I don't even know what the offense will look like. I haven't seen him with both DK and Lockett this year with a full year of offense. It could just be so different. And one thing that I think may be different is Geno seems at least in the preseason, and it could be different in the regular season, but in the preseason, he seemed a little bit more willing to take the deep shot than he did any point. In those three games he played last year, it seems like it's an area of his game that he tried to work on, and he seems to learn. He seems to have learned how to balance it better. So that's also a whole X factor that I don't know. Now Gino's never going to throw for. Only he's going to have like 250, 270 yards. I, I just can't see that. But he averaged 175. Does he go more 200? Does he average like 200 this time? That will make a difference too in projections. So I'm going to give percentages for you, David. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm thinking that of the targets that Gino, of of the throws that Gino makes, DK will get 40% of the targets. That's my estimate. I think Locke will get 30, around 30% of the, of the targets, somewhere in that range. I'm thinking low 30, maybe 30, 31. And then I got to count for Fant here. And that matters. I think the tight end usage will be important to this offense. And I think Geno will lean on Fant. He seemed uh, to have a propensity to go to Fant a few times, you know, in game in the preseason too. So I think Fant will get 25% of the targets and then 4% will be other, you know, guys like D. Eskridge, Marquise Goodwin, if he makes the team. And I think one thing that's a factor that will change is when Ken Walker gets to to playing they seemed really to lean on him in the past game and he seemed to be pretty explosive in the past game as well it seemed to be effective they used it in the mock game and 
I don't think they used it much in that first preseason game, but Ken Walker didn't get a lot of run, I don't think, if I'm recalling that correctly. So, But I just heard a lot about how explosive in the offseason Ken Walker III looked and how they didn't know if he'd be good in the passing game because you know he didn't do a lot of it in college. Well, he looked great. Um, when, when in the mock game, especially. And so I, I'm wondering, was that something that they just wanted to see in the off season? Is that something that when he gets back, they'll implement more? If so, whose reps does that come from? My initial thought is that those reps would just come, they, they would be taken away from Noah Fant maybe, and not a DK or a Tyler, but who knows? Um, but that's another factor to throw into it. And I do expect Ken Walker to be able to make Really make some make make some things shake if he gets those opportunities. So that's something I hope to see. But otherwise, that's on my breakdown of how the Geno's throws will go. I think Laka will still be productive. I don't think he hits a thousand yards. I think DK might hit a thousand yards, like a little bit over. I think hopefully Laka will be a little bit under in the nine hundred range, something like that. And then Fant might get six hundred yards. We'll see, something like that. That that's sort of my initial projections but like I said I'd, I'd really need to know how Geno looks in this offense at least see a game of him to see if he's going to get better with throwing the ball down the field if the preseason was just a you know completely irrelevant or that's a part of his game he's trying to be a little bit better at since taking over the job in 2010 Pete Carroll has never had a season below nine wins am I taking the over or the under for this season now my thinking is, it's probably seven on a dot. I, I kind of want to push here, but I know I'm not going to take the lame way out. The question was asked. So I'm going to take the over. My initial estimation when I first started this preseason was that the Seahawks could win eight games. Now, some people may think that's ridiculous, and I will even admit it's a little optimistic. I think it's realistically that they win actually seven games. But I'm going to go through the wins and talk about why I think that. So I think they can beat the 49ers at San Francisco in week two. Trey Lance will still be very new. I don't, I think he'll be, he'll have enough weaknesses to to his game that the Seahawks might be able to beat them. And when the Seahawks had a seven, seven win team last year, they swept the 49ers. Now, I don't think they'll sweep them, but I think they'll split. And I think the best opportunity for the Seahawks to win a game is to win it in week two versus week 16, where he's got he's got his legs under him, Trey Lance. And I think he'll be harder to beat later on in the season. So I got them winning week two against San Fran. I got them winning in week three against Atlanta because the Falcons are, people say the Seahawks roster is worse. Atlanta's roster is worse. Period. Okay. I think they can win week four against the Lions. I don't think it will be an easy game because I think the Lions will be kind of tough. I think they'll be a frisky type of team this upcoming year. But I, I'm thinking that the Seahawks will be able to put together, pull together teamwork, discipline, and pull out one against the Lions. Now, this is my swing game. Saints week five. I am probably the only person in this earth that genuinely thinks that the Seahawks could beat the Saints at New Orleans. Now, I'm going to tell you my logic, and you might still think I'm crazy. That's okay, but I'm going to tell you my logic. The Seahawks played the Saints with Geno starting last year. It was a home game in Seattle. The wind 
was pretty gusty. They weren't won a whole lot of throws. Neither team was playing well. It was a very defensive-oriented game. But Geno had the team in a place to win. The reason they didn't win that game was because Jason Myers didn't make two field goals. Geno was actually playing. I'm not saying he's playing well. He looked pretty bad, but so did so did they. <laughs> it just wasn't a good. It was an ugly type of defensive game. And I think with a year of prep, understanding the you know ins and outs, Seattle having a better defense, and hopefully Jason Myers making the field goals this year. It's possible for the Seahawks to go down there and beat Jameis Winston in the C- in the Saints because you know got so close last time and it was just a year ago. I think, like I said, it's a long shot. I know the Saints' defense is a great defense, so it's not me saying anything negative about the Saints. I just think that's a possible upset opportunity, and I know it would truly be an upset if it happened. So that's my swing game because, like I said, I I really think it's more realistic they win seven. But if they win eight, my guess is it would be that one. All right. I got them winning week six against the Cards, the Cardinals, because DeAndre Hopkins will still be out. That'd be his last week of suspension. He'll come back in week seven. But I think that without D-Hop, to be honest, Marquise Brown, he does not scare me. I don't even know who will be healthy at that point. Their defense doesn't scare me. They lost Chandler Jones. And I think that the Seahawks can split with the Cardinals. It's a divisional game. People will say, oh, no, you're not going to beat the Cardinals. Well, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, I think the Cardinals will be a little weird this year. I'm not, I'm not as high on the Cardinals as, others, as other people might be. And even so, like I said, without D-Hop, Kyler's not look good. Yes, he'll have some offensive weapon to fall back on, but it's easy enough to double Marquise Brown and take him out of it. And he's known for having some drops. So, again, doesn't scare me. I think the Seahawks can take that one think they can win week eight against the Giants. They can win week 14 against the Panthers. I think it'll be a tougher game like the Lions. Baker Millfield is good, but he is beatable. And who knows how things are going at that point in week 14. Panthers might even be just in tank mode altogether. Never know. But there's that. And then I think week 18 against the Jets. So I think they can win that game. I'm sorry, week 17 against the Jets. My mistake. Week 17 against the Jets. So I'm going to take the over if I have to take one. But realistically, I think they win seven games exactly. And if they did that, to me, that's a success for the Seahawks. That is a success for the team. You can win between six to eight games. That means your roster is good enough. Just need a quarterback to help build. Ensure there will be some holes to fill in. But that's a solid foundation for a team, especially one that's not looking to be in a long rebuild. It's more of a retool with around the young talent. And hopefully, if the Seahawks can do that, it'll be an exciting future once they draft that franchise quarterback, or hopefully they can dra- they can draft the next franchise quarterback. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again to David Williams for sending out all those questions. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. That's at CandiceH901. And be sure to give the show a like or follow. Follow us at Ethos Seahawks. Be sure to get all the latest updates, analytics, and polls. You'll find it there. Next episode, we'll talk about our 53-man roster cut now. So we'll get into all those details soon. Until then, that's it. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.